And what happened is that they actually, at the time, lowered the barrier to guilt. So all of a sudden, people that were active in one field were able to apply their knowledge and their whole background into, into other fields. And that's how you kind of got to the Leonardo da Vinci moments of that period. So I think that was one socioeconomic kind of driver for, for what happened in the Renaissance. I'm Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to the American Optimist. I'm really excited to have my good friend, we can call you Dr. Jeanette Furstenberg. You're also Princess Jeanette Furstenberg. <laughs> Jeanette, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Jeanette, let's tell people a little bit about you. You have a PhD in philosophy and entrepreneurship from the Free University of Berlin. You've had extremely successful first venture capital funds. You're, you're a venture capitalist. Talk a little bit about your PhD. I'm fascinated. You studied how entrepreneurship and art you know, impacted each other throughout the ages. What eras did you focus on for that? Yeah, no, it's, a, um, it's actually a fascinating topic. So I had the luck of having a grandfather that was really one of the most inspiring people I've come across because he's actually, he was an artist before becoming an entrepreneur. And then he basically took a lot of that creative destruction mindset and applied it to entrepreneurship. And he had no idea of engineering and no idea of physics. And he built a business that was really deeply rooted in the process industry. So very, very kind of deep techie. And it like, you know, required from the outside and it required very different skill sets to what he actually deep brought tech, to the table. But, but he started as an artist. He started as an artist and then he was, he took that company over from his uncle who died in the war. And his grandmother was like, hey, can you take care of it for a couple of months until we find a replacement? And it was like a 10 company, you know, 10 people company at the time. And then he basically took it over and then actually built that into a global business. And, um, but he always retained that exposure and that interest in art. He like, you know, he always collected art. He would always host artists at our place. And I kind of grew up in this mindset and this like kind of. You saw art and entrepreneurship as being really related. No, not initially. I think that kind of revelation came later, but I saw him kind of very much intertwining art literature. He was a, you know, very passionate reader. He was a very passionate reciter of poems. He was someone that um, would always be extremely curious in very, very many different domains. And that curiosity has kind of led him to pull in, you know, people that would sit around our dinner table that really had seemingly nothing to do with one another, but really were kind of been creating very interesting discussions that were just kind of sparking new ideas. And that is kind of a great analogy to the way he ran his business. So he would always kind of, as, as one example, if he was confronted with, a, with an issue or with a problem, which was in his specific case, a, um, a level and flow meter process, it's called the Coriolis effect, which basically measures the flow that flows through a U-shaped cube. And that flow is basically being measured or at the time was measured by kind of measuring the vibration and lots of different variables from a sensor perspective. Why did this matter to flow through a U-shaped cube? And the problem he was facing, that his engineers were facing, is that uh, they, um, the flow would actually create other kind of substances would create residents and they weren't really scalable to large diameters. So if you think about the oil and gas industry, which kind of evolved in the time when, when I was a child, they were like, listen, we have to make it like a straight tube. It, it doesn't work to have yeah. a U-shaped form. And that straight tube was something that all engineers told him was impossible. It's like, you know, we cannot build a straight tube. You know, it, it has to be the U-shaped form. That's, that's the only way the process works. So he said, listen, um, take a look at this violin string and the way it's swinging. Let's try to replicate that effect. So he basically always applied concepts that weren't really innate to the industry. And basically through that disrupted um, and, and hacked a lot of new sort of innovations into the, into the, into the business. And that is just something that always fascinated me. And then when I went and studied um, in initially philosophy and, and business, 
I thought this has really very little to do with what I've learned with my grandfather. You know, you learn about accounting and you learn about all these different, you know, marketing strategies, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, it all sounds great and great and well, but it has nothing to do with this kind of spirited, kind of really creative, disruptive force that I was observing. So the, 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 so the energy of the entrepreneur and the, yes. and the genius philosophy of the entrepreneur is not at all what they teach in business school. They, at te- all. they teach yeah. these like counting exactly. structures. Yeah. They kind of teach the boring parts. Yeah, exactly. It's the super boring parts, which really, in the end of the day, you just figure it out, right? It's just kind of common sense to some degree. So what I then, um, I was really dissatisfied with that. And then I was actually, um, you know, I came across this professor in, in, in Berlin and he was teaching entrepreneurship and his, his whole thought was kind of going to that direction. And I said, hey, I'd really love to explore if art and entrepreneurship have something to do with one another, if there is an intersection and what that actually means for, for companies to succeed. And if there's a structural, you know, sort of, you know, root cause to it and where that can be traced back to. And that's how we um, actually looked at the Renaissance, which is an amazing um, sort of exercise because you really look at a period in time where, you know, Europe was really much, very much in the Middle Ages. It was very much kind of lost and lost in darkness to some degree. Mm. And then you had these very little ecosystems in you know, Florence and in, 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 in uh, Siena, that all of a sudden were propelling themselves 200 years ahead of their time. So I really wanted to understand why was that? Like you had, on the one hand, very successful, you know, banking families such as the Medici's and such as um, se- several others. And then you had um, this emergence of incredible art, right? Like you had really like the Renaissance, which is like looking at Botticelli, looking at Donatello, looking at the beautiful... It, it, it is interesting The Renaissance and culture was a rebirth of art and literature. At the same time, you had some new entrepreneurship coming Yeah, out. you had actually, and that's the interesting part, I'm going to get to that later, you actually had the birth of entrepreneurship, as Max Weber said. So Max Weber said, like, entrepreneurship was really kind of born in that, in that, in that time. So the way, or what, what I actually found out is that looking at this period, you initially had a very strong segregation between different crafts, right? We had the craft of wood manufacturing, you had the craft of, I don't know, painting, you had the craft of, um, you know, stonemasons. So all of these were very, very separate fields. You'd you were be a kind guild of born, for, you work for years. Exactly. And these yeah. guilds were kind of very, very kind of passed on from father to son. And they were very much kind of, you know, like isolated, if you like. And what happened is that they actually, at the time, lowered the barrier to guilt. So all of a sudden, people that were active in one field were able to apply their knowledge and their whole background into into other fields. And that's how you kind of got to the Leonardo da Vinci moments of of, of that period. So I think that was one socioeconomic kind of driver um, for, for what happened in the Renaissance. And then what happened is that you had a lot of, um, you know, merchants at the time that were traveling all the way to uh, the Middle East and they were kind of buying silk, et cetera, et cetera, in order to kind of drive that type of, um, th- that type of business. So was it just bringing other cultures and mixing? Is that tied to it as well? No, so then, it or? was more the question of like, they were building a business, right? Which basically you had some money, you went to the Middle East, it took you a long, long time, a long trip, you came back, you sold that, you had just enough money to kind of, you know, make your family stay alive. And then you would basically take the leftovers and reinvest it. So it's basically no working capital provision of any sort. Mm-hmm. And what happened is that at the same time, you had an invention, which was a double-sided bookkeeping, basically. Mm-hmm. And something called the, um, something called the bill of exchange. And these were inventions that happened kind of separately at the time. And these weren't really, I call them inventions because they only became innovations when people actually combined the two. So you had people like the Medici that were seeing all of their, um, you know, themselves being merchants. They saw other merchants always struggling from the fact that they couldn't take credit. Credit was yeah. actually forbidden at the time, right? It was only Jews that were, um, that were kind of able to, to hand out credit and even that not happening in a legal, in a, in a legal facility. 
So the Medici she looked at it and said, "Hey, wait a minute! Like we, we need to we need to travel there. Like why don't we use a bill of exchange as a way for credit, as a means for credit?" So they basically combined an invention that already existed. And basically took that as a means to, to, to accelerate the economy and really create what was the banking sector at the time. And the interesting, um, I think, I think learning you can draw from that is that they did something that most entrepreneurs do. They, they look at a given problem, right? And then they just t- t- often take things that are already existing and they just kind of reshuffle them to something new, right? They recreate them in, in, a, in a way and shape or form that you might not have known before, right? And there's always a stark difference between just, you know, science versus the actual applied science, which then becomes innovation and business. As an entrepreneur, I'm curious. So the Medici's, what you described is a, is a process innovation, which, which anyone can use, but they must have done it in a way that specifically helped their own their own banking empire. Yeah. And, and was, it, was it because everyone trusted their bill of exchange or, or, or what, or what, what, how, how is it specifically They were the to first them? ones to see that. And that's actually the interesting part. So because you had people that were kind of getting richer and richer, so you had merchants that were becoming rich. At the same time, these merchants, and that's actually the whole art side of, of things, right? I was just talking about the, the economic, uh, economic part of it, but looking at the art side of, of, of the whole Renaissance evolution is that you had people that became wealthy and in order to show their wealth, they would hire and patronize artists to kind of, you know, make them beautiful palaces and like make, make this all would of be that a status symbol as, as a status symbol initially. Right. But that type of t- status symbol led to a very high degree of competition on talent. So you had all the artists, you know, coming from the Netherlands and Germany and they would all in different parts of Italy, they would all travel there because they knew there was business to be made and they knew that there was a way for them to, for them to succeed. And the and competition make a name for drove it to higher heights. Of course. And the uh, competition kind of drove it to higher heights and that just kind of accelerated from like the you know from the from the origins of of um of painting at the time all the words to manierism and this was like very very fast progressions that you were seeing um that you were seeing in art at the time and i'm not an art historian but what i thought was really interesting is that you had these two overlapping trends and you had the medici as an actor that was really in between both fields they were always very passionate about art they in their patronage, in their, in, their, in their patronship of art, they were the ones that actually took risk as well, right? They commissioned Brunelleschi to build the Chapel of of, um, of Florence, which at the time was the largest sort of freestanding cupola that existed in the world. So them being, you know, a very prominent economic figure, them being a very prominent political figure as well, they kind of put a lot of trust in that artist and in that architect to really make that happen. Because if that cupola would have crashed, it would have had a very, very severe impact on their perception as leaders, on their perception as as entrepreneurs, and their perception of many different fields. But they always took these risks. They're always really engaged in the actual art process themselves. There are like a lot of letters between them going back and forth with artists on like how a given artwork should look like, what the what the different um, dimensionalities That's interesting. Could be. The artists don't like that today if someone tries exactly. to but that was, too involved. And that's an interesting part because at the time art wasn't really considered a you know an artist wasn't considered a genius this whole development of like the 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 artist as a genius came much later it actually came at the end of the renaissance but initially they were just contractors they were like basically hired and the hired by a patron the patron was the one and and how and so you know in our in our technology companies today i I always focus on of course the engineering culture but also the design culture something we consider to be really important which which i i know you agree with you maybe just uh, to stay on the renaissance just just briefly like how did the art culture impact their entrepreneurship in return? Because it seems like they've made all this money, yeah. they made all this art awesome. Like, like, but how did they, how did it make them into better entrepreneurs? Yeah. So I think like it cannot be said for certain. I think my view on that is by being so close to the creative process in art, you're constantly built, dealing with people essentially that are seismographic for societal change. They're very 
like more ephemeral than, you know, people like you and I would interact with in the business world are. And they're very kind of sensitive to um, structural societal they're changes. making more connections between different areas. Exactly. And they're more, mm -hmm. exactly. They're like, they're, they're, they're operating at a, at a wavelength and abstraction level that is similar to what you may know from, from math or that exists in other fields of so creation. This, this is a really good energy for an entrepreneur to be exposed to like more, more metacognition, more yeah. thinking broadly and creatively yeah, and it inspires think, them. Yeah, exactly. I think my view is that is this really allows you to think in a disruptive way and to innovate and, um, and go away from sort of incremental innovation to disruptive innovation and really create something that's essentially new rather than just better of, of an so you're, so, so, so you, you've been a very successful venture investor you're scaling your firm how are you applying this today are, are there other are examples of, of how this works today yeah I think there are many examples and I think looking at the best founding teams you usually have a mix of both right like if you if, if you look at philosophy you would probably have um, something called the realist and you would have someone called an idealist right they usually like if you look at the best founding teams they're usually kind of very, um, very complementary in that sense. Speaking of the two cultures you also just mentioned. So you have some people that are more deterministic, you know, they're more sort of rational, top down, you know, they just kind of apply a more rigorous sort of technology perspective. And then you have others that are more idealistic. So they're more in this kind of creative sort of bottom up, like, what could this be? Like, what is the relative distortion you field? You try to We're pair actually... these people together in these companies? Well, I'm not pairing them. They usually try to, they usually find themselves, right? That's the interesting part. Like, you always would find like similar, similar, um, patterns in, in founders, in my view. And what's, what, what I find fascinating is looking at the best founders, they really have almost like a reality distortion field thereafter, right? They basically see 10 to 15 years in the future and they, similar to an artist, really, like similar to any creator. And then they have the ability to break that down into like smaller bite-sized kind of like periods or like uh, milestones, basically, that are graspable for future employees, that are graspable for investors. But they essentially also have to be very good at storytelling. They're basically drawing you a picture of what that could be. And that's actually a concept that happened um, or that, is, that existed in the Renaissance called disegno. Disegno is basically a term that was used for drawing. So basically the initial drawing, you would make like a sketch, but it also was used as a means to express how ideas actually materialize from your head into something that is, that is, that is graspable, right? That is, that is, that is tangible for others. So this, 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 this is, so you have something, an idea in your head that's very high level and you have to somehow turn it into something someone else can understand. Yeah. Can someone else can understand someone, somebody else can follow you on, right? So the, the, idea, the idea is the idea is real and it's cool and, but it's just in your head in some kind of other format. Yeah. And then, and people have to, people have to be able to follow you. So for example, had Zuckerberg or Larry Page, had these guys gone out initially and said, you know, we are going to create data as a currency. And this is, this is actually what Google is going to become 20 years from now. People would have called them crazy, right? So what yeah. they did is they just built like initially a search engine, they initially built you know, like yeah. a social network, right? That it, people, I think, cannot follow you the f all way, the whole way you can't, through. Yeah, you can't, give, you can't give them the thing from 20 years ahead. If, even if you're thinking that way, you've got to exactly. give them the thing. Exactly. You have to break it down for others to be able to follow you. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's always the hardest part when we create startups is how we how we basically create the path and the path becomes a part of the real world yeah that's because it yeah. no that's that's very interesting and they create it's it's it, you create a path also into an unknown future i think that's the interesting part right you you're basically creating the future you're crafting it yeah. that's what i find so exciting about entrepreneurship is that we are really the ones building it and then yeah. you have to follow the best and brightest founders to achieve that and it's, you have sometimes to kind of, described to me as building a bridge without knowing exactly where the other side is yet which is very scary yeah. for some people yeah. but the whole fear i think fear has to be something that's built into the concept you have to be able to be comfortable operating under fear is, is it is it a dialectic between like the engineers and the technologists 
and this like, creative energy because you need both. But it's not just a dialectic because they're actually they're actually part of the same thing. But there also are like different forces in the company as well. Yeah. So do do you think do you have to have some people in the company that are they're usually more artistic and visionary, and some that are more technical working together? Or, or how, I mean, the, I work? think the best example for that would be, you know, the whole technology and product side, right? One has to be more, like looking at product these days and the consumerization of enterprise as one example, you want to have very intuitive interfaces, which has to do a lot with empathy. You have to kind of understand your user. You have to understand what their fears are, like what their inhibitions are in using your product. You know, look at low code as sort of the the, the most extreme example, right? And we have one company that basically builds a data infrastructure product, but they basically have an interface that allows for SQL and low-code to run in parallel. So SQL you basically have two database. user groups. SQL is a complicated database language that you have to be yeah. te- technologists to use in the low-code. Exactly. Means anyone can figure exactly. it out. Exactly. And I think that's a great example where you kind of try to marry the two, but you need people on the product side that really have the empathy for the user to understand, like, where is it that someone that is not a technologist and not a data scientist is able to follow me here? And what is the dimension that is actually deep enough for a technologist to kind of take seriously? Right, so I think that's probably the best example for that question. Let's step back and talk a little bit about about your fund. It's called La Familia, and what's the, what's the mission? You're trying to connect established industry with startup startup ecosystem, and this is kind of fun because your your family background, obviously, you're come, you're from a more established industry, yeah. but then you also you're also working in startup ecosystem. You're trying to help others do that. So talk, talk talk to us a little bit about the yeah. mission. So I think what I observed around sort of six years ago is that. Europe was undergoing a very interesting transformation, right? It was, you had all these world market leaders across several fields, you know, people, some companies you've never heard of, but they became specialists in what essentially powers B2B infrastructure across logistics, across supply chain, across manufacturing. So what, what the thesis was that technology would really be horizontal enabler to productize that into digital value and see how, you know, that, that could really transform into something that is sort of 20, 20, 21st century ready. And the interesting um, aspect for Europe versus the U.S. is that in order to take a company to market, I think you're much more reliant on buy-in from these large companies. Like you, if you want to sell a product into a Daimler, into BMW, it's it's sometimes can take you two years to kind of really get to kind of some degree of yeah. workable sales motion. And the thesis was that if we were really kind of keen on making Europe succeed at this sort of core value proposition, which I think is something that is amazing and something that Europe is really able to excel at versus consumer, where we were just not as strong because our market is so much more heterogeneous, then we would be able to really, um, you know, build build a very strong foundational technology ecosystem there. And this is a hard thing to do, obviously. I remember going to Europe 10 or 15 years ago with companies that I was working on, and the big companies were not too interested in working and engaging with startups. And yeah. I guess that's maybe changed in the culture a little bit. It's and you've, changed you've, you've helped, And you've helped change it, too. I've, you know, I've, I don't know. It's like, in all, in all, in all humility, I think I, I try to make play my part. I was at least very engaged in making that change, uh, being mm-hmm. part of that change, because I think it's so important. And what um, we did with La Familia is that we just brought together the brightest entrepreneurs as, as, as investors. So these are people that have built and scaled large businesses in Europe, together with some um, some founders, you know, that already had first initial successes in the in the in the in the consumer internet world at the time. And then we started investing into B2B um, companies in at the early stages. You know, these were like companies in SMB or anything relating to horizontal workflow automation and, and, and enterprise. So we had really like built a build a broad portfolio um, over, over, over over have built a large portfolio. And how'd you and how do you bring these people together? I mean I think I think we all have to use our unfair advantages. One one unfair advantage you have is that you're a princess and you have like really cool castles and stuff. Is that <laughs> Is that an advantage to bring people together because they want to come hang out and, and be at these places? Or? Yeah, I think you know what, what what is interesting if you if you if you look at Europe and if you think of the way 
Europe has evolved, we always had something called the parlor culture or the salon culture, right? which is essentially something where you would host curious minds and discuss, you know, literature, dis you know, play music discuss poetry where people would recite and like it this was, is what americans think of paris when we hear about exactly it. so paris at the turn yeah. of the century, vienna at the turn of the century and yeah. uh, you know it, it, like if you think that the, a lot of that was really driven by jewish intellectuals which unfortunately all had to flee or large parts of them had to had to had to had to had to leave um leave europe but it kind of still led us to kind of have a culture where you would basically bring people in and kind of have them unite and be, be curious about one another. But the issue, on the other hand, that Europe is facing, and that is very different towards the US, is that Europe is very, um, I wouldn't say suspicious of, of new of new things, but they are very cautious, right? If, and that's kind of just a consequence of if you have everything to lose then you're obviously much more cautious than if you have everything to gain right it's so, kind of funny we always it's the we always see the old world as more intellectually cautious whereas there's like more cowboys here on the frontier pushing things ahead but there but i mean things are being pushed ahead pretty fast now around europe too but it just, yeah. just took longer it took longer but i think like we ha we've reached an inflection point but let me just make maybe quickly stay on the yeah stay on the stay on the evolution a little bit so what i think is interesting in in the in the european um in the european ecosystem is that you all of a sudden see this very strong cohesion of companies that are either disrupting or enabling these large companies and them really kind of you know building rapport and building early con early connections to um founders and entrepreneurs from from established industry and i think the way to make that happen is to really by allowing them to um, by, by basically creating a trusted access platform, right? And that's what La Familia does. Like, that's what I care about doing is by bringing people and entrepreneurs together face to face. Because once you do that, they always speak the same language. All of them want their businesses to succeed ultimately. But it usually happens at the second or third management level mm -hmm. where that type of exchange just stalled. Well, be, be your, your role is a trusted intermediary where if you're working with the entrepreneur, they know this is serious. Yeah. They know there's a good chance that technology has been checked. It's going yeah. to work. These people aren't crazy. Exactly. So that's, that's, yeah. I think that's in part what we're doing is that we kind of invite entrepreneurs that I've grown up with, you know, like the whole German Mittelstand where mm -hmm. I come from is very connected. Like you, you grow with a lot of next gens from other companies and other, you know, firms that are, were similar to yours. So I had already built that, built that network, which then got enhanced over, over, over time. And that is something that I think is very valuable in creating this like very deep trust and bringing them basically together in, in an informal environment that is not transactional. I think the U.S. works very well on, on a transactional front because it's less, it, it's less considered a fallacy or not less considered a, you know, something odd to, to, to just walk up to someone and discuss something new, right? In Europe, you would be, maybe except for Italy, people would look at you odd if you just walk up to someone and say, hey, like, what are you doing? Let's, shall we, shall we discuss the business opportunity here? It's just nothing that I think is, is, it's, 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 you, you kind of need a bigger middle piece of middleware to connect it and make it normal in Europe and yes. make it healthy, make it trusted. So how, so, so given you have, you have these networks, but obviously you're identifying new talent as well. How, how do you identify new talent? How do you, how do you diligence people? How do you find the top up and coming entrepreneurs? Yeah. So I think similar to, to everyone, I think a lot of it is, is just network driven. Um, so we have all sorts of, you know, we, we obviously have the whole screening and the technology driven deal floor sourcing, et cetera, et cetera. But then it comes down to actually 
seeing everything and then after seeing everything it's like what are the right filter mechanisms right and i think that's where um or someone see- or someone that's just intuitive as well you just you have to have an eye for people I think so. And I think that eye for people is actually key, right? And in, in, especially in seed and early stage is often all there is. Like you may have early innings of a product, you may have early innings of, you know, first customer, uh, customer signaling, but usually you have to be very, very confident just backing strong talent. And I think that's something that looking at the, looking at, you know, literature, for example, um, you learn so much about human intent as one example, like you, you learn or you read a lot about what is it that innately really drives people that, that really, um, how, how does intent surface? How, how does it manifest? Um, what, what I, what I just early innings of, of talent. So I think because I've, I've always been really passionate about literature, really passionate reader of, of, of many different pieces. Maybe that's kind of the lens so that think, I apply so you think, to. You think to you, you basically, one, one way my son might put it is you have a larger, ontology of human nature that you're then building intuition around so you can you can see people and see where they fit into different types of that and so people who study literature people who study philosophy maybe they have more ways to think about people and more ways to analyze the parts with, that are really hard you know, i think you know our industry is great joe because there are just so many different lenses that are you know applied to like screening talent like you may spot something very different to what i what, what i may find interesting and i think it just happens so because we all have you know different levels of abstraction i think what i'm what i'm always passionate about is Dealing with people, like smart people always have a high level of, of abstraction in very multi-different, you know, di- I, dimensions, I, right? And then if you, once you, once you cohe- create a cohesive layer there, that's when you get pattern recognition on talent, on I, intuition. I have found that a lot of the most useful models that I have, which are very hard to put into words, come from having worked with, uh, with Alex Karp, who also had a PhD in philosophy yeah. from Germany. So I, th- I think, I think there is maybe something about German philosophy that gives you, that gives you a richer and, you know, probably literature as well, that gives you a richer perspective on this. So it does, maybe that, that kind of ties back a little bit to what you were talking about before with, uh, with the art artists and the entrepreneurs. Where if you have these like, different pieces of, of experience in human nature, you can kind of bring it together and understand it better. Yeah, I mean, think about a philosophy is just a, a similar abstraction to math or to other other areas. You will have a genius math brain. I have less of a genius math brain. I'm more like my my language is really is is really that right? Like it's, you have these conceptual frameworks that you can apply and that kind of give you guidance and give you some degree of um, you know in, intuitive um, action, but then also allows you to actually just get to get to complexity so, uh, faster. So, right? so, so, so all this faster. ability, if you had applied this in Europe 20 years ago, my biases would have been a lot harder because something, something's obviously changed. Right? Yeah. The companies are more open to it. Uh, it seems like you've been telling, yeah, if, if you would have asked like, where's the top Google next Google coming from 20 years ago, obviously 30 years ago, it was from the Bay area, from yeah. Silicon Valley. And, and now there's all these bright minds in Europe uh, that are that are building these things. Like, why why has human talent shifted that way in Europe? What's 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 going on that this allowed all these people to express themselves this way? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think first of all, we always had strong engineering talent, right? That's that's just a given, and that's not only in in, in the center of Europe, but also in Eastern Europe. So I think we've had a very very strong initial engineering talent base. I think what has shifted very much is failure culture. So I think that's something we've really very much learned from you guys and like by looking at, you know, the Silicon Valley more as a, as, as a guiding, as a guiding North Star. What's, People are willing to, to go outside means. the bounds as well. Go outside the bounds, lose or like kind of a little bit get rid of that fear of failure. Cause it used to be that, especially in, in, in Germany or more traditional sectors, if you failed at something, you were burned. Like you could go and go home and like put ashes on your, <laughs> put ashes on your head and kind of, you know, just stay, stay, stay out of it. Right. Yeah. And that just created this initial fear and inhibition to really go and create and build. And I think that is something that has very much changed over the last few years. And it's just become 
a, um, you know, where people used to go into banking or consulting before, then now all kind of looking to work in technology. And have, you, have you have you backed people who have had a big failure and then they had a big success afterwards? Is that yes? Yet? And that's happening more and more, right? And it's, it's also happening because a lot of these people have seen scale, right? I think that we're getting to this point in, in the ecosystem where we have seen, you know, large companies that, you know, gain, came to like multi-billion dollar outcomes in Europe. And then all of a sudden you have companies that come off of that from like a second generation, like the product manager of, of a neobank that now goes and builds like, you know, an, an accounting business in the SMB space. So you have mm-hmm. like all of these new, um, n- new founders that are kind of second generation kind of productizing problems or productizing value that they have seen elsewhere. And also, they have then come come already with the idea of scale. They've seen scale. They've experienced scale in terms of in terms of culture. And initially, that was so much harder to transmit from the U.S. to Europe. I remember the first, the first, um, the first success successful companies here. They constantly went to the U.S. and tried to get best practices on how to scale HR, like how to hire, like what is the appropriate sort of salary framework. Everyone disagrees on that here, anyway. Though, excuse me. (laughs) Everyone disagrees about the answers. Yeah, but but it's still. But but you can get you can get a sense of what's a sense of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. One of one of the models of La Familia is that. You say that we believe that contrarian investments will outperform conformist investments. Yeah. What's what's contrarian and what's conformist? How, how, do you, how, how does that work? It's, I think it's a great question. So con- conformist usually is what people would sort of expect, or what the I think what the what the actual. Um, so if the average person is very comfortable with this as an investment, maybe it's not as good exactly. as the one that they're uncomfortable exactly. with. Exactly. So and the uncomfort really comes usually. It's usually associated to risk, right? It's usually associated to something that is almost pie in the sky type. Yeah, like the Air- Airbnb when you exactly. hear about it early. That exactly. sounds very uncomfortable. So looking at, for example, our company. You probably don't Airbnb the castle. <laughs> exactly. Not yet, no. But looking at, um, looking at, for example, our company Stoke, you know, which is like a space launcher company or our company Unai, which is basically like building, building VR headsets, right? People look at that industry and say like, oh, you know, hardware and like, it's, it's so tough. hard and stuff. And yes, it is tough. And yes, it is hard. But these guys are just like listening to these founders. And that's what I mean by, by, by being contrarian, like, and by following the vision and being able to kind of buy into the reality distortion field of certain talent is they are just so good, right? They're just so incredibly they see, they see something. amazing. Yeah. And then you, and then the question becomes like great, in my view, great founders never fail. They may not succeed. But they never fail. I think that's a very fine but meaningful difference, right? And I think you have to be comfortable with gaining control along the way as a founder and also as an investor. Like you cannot have control at the beginning. You cannot know everything at the beginning. You have to kind of be comfortable in buying into some macro, right? It's like, is there like, do we believe the macro market for that is going to be there, even though it may not manifest in real market size today? So these are all, um, these are all, I think, questions or answers tied to what we believe makes, makes good contrarian bets. I, I want to make sure, Janelle, I get to ask you about some of the way U.S. is approaching these things. A lot of U.S. institutions, they're maybe not as focused on contrarian and genius stuff. They're really focused on making sure they're backing diversity and they're really focused on kind of creating categories to make sure underrepresented people get involved, which, and I know you and I both, both think it's a good thing to to, to do that. But at the same time, uh, it it could be kind of annoying how they approach diversity. I'm 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 curious. I'm curious to hear like, like, do you ever, do you ever feel like it's, is it ridiculous sometimes what goes on in the U S around this or or is it similar as in Europe and what's happening there? You know, I cannot speak to the U S versus Europe as much because I'm not, I'm not aware. I mean, we discussed this a little bit, but I'm not aware of a lot of the things that are going on here. I think just in general on the subject of diversity, I grew up you know, it like was born in the, in the, in the eighties, you know, and then I kind of just grew up in a mindset thinking that, you know, 
it wasn't everything wasn't fully solved but i had all the chances i wanted if i wanted to and i yes i you know, had a family that was able to support me in going through like good educational programs etc but in the end the the world was mine to conquer that's kind of the belief that i always had you didn't feel like there was a gender bias against no, you or maybe a little bit in some a ways a little bit and i think you know my grandfather who loved me dearly and who thought the world of me he looked at me and said you cannot have children and also you know run a company how should that work and now here we are, like I have four kids, right? And I think you it, have four it is young working. children, and you're building something big. That that, that was very hard to do. Four yeah, years so he ago. had he kind of confronted me with that very strong bias. But I think the question with bias always is you have to be able to, um, you know, put that into context first of all, right? Understand where he's coming from. He's born in a very different generation, and then secondly, not assume malice in people confronting you with biases, right? Like especially as a woman, like I have seen a lot more goodwill and support, especially from men in that industry, such as yourselves. You know, you have been incredibly supportive of me since the very beginning. Like when I came and started La Familia, a lot of people in Europe probably had more question marks around what I was doing than you had. A lot, like of, people when are, I, a lot of people are very cynical when people start things. Yeah, especially yeah. in Europe. They're like, venture had never worked. You know, venture in Europe, like where are the returns? Oh my God, isn't, you know, like there are no exits. Like I got all these questions and then obviously like, what is you, what do you have to do in this whole situation? Like it doesn't, you know, it just seemed very counterintuitive to people in Europe, yeah. but you and people like Elad, who's, who's a mutual friend or, or Daniel, like these were all people that, that when I met them, they kind of trusted me. They said, Hey, this is cool. Just do it. You know, there was not even a question on whether I would be capable of doing it, whatever. They just thought it was a great idea and we should just give it a try. You know, that's the kind of spirit I, I kept getting. And back to the point of men, especially from men, because there are like, if you're looking for mentors in that industry, there are very few women that have succeeded in business in traditional industries, but also in the startup ecosystem specifically. So you have to kind of lean on to men to support you and to guide you and to give you their one, shared experience. One of the things that, that bothers me a little bit, I have very talented female partners and they're partners because they're talented, obviously, yeah. not because they're female. And, and I, 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 I see you in that list as a good friend who's extremely talented. Just say what you do, regardless regardless of gender. Yeah. A lot of these conferences, it feels like it feels like they're only showing you off because you're a woman, not yeah, exactly. because you're the best. I'm, yeah. I'm curious what your experience is with and that. And I think that's terrible. I think it's not helping diversity. It's really not helping us as women, I believe, if we're being put into like a separate corner where we're being like, you know, looked at as pets almost, you know, it's like, oh, look, how cute, you know, it's, it's a woman. Like you want to succeed just in the same way. I'm in a business is in the end, we're all here to make money and I have to deliver returns to my investors. And that's what I'm here to do. And I'm not here to be like, you know, looked at as sort of some cute little, you know, or like something that needs to be protected, like a rare animal, you know, that deserves like a special place in the zoo. Should there be special panels for women? No, is I that, don't think you know, so. I think there should be panels that is content and not the whole diversity question per my, se. My father's a chess coach where he's the top kids chess coach we talked yeah. about and, and he won, won the state almost every year with his public elementary school here in the US and, and they started having these different tournaments for women for chess yeah. and my dad and I thought this was kind of obnoxious because, yeah. because it's like women should be able to compete directly with yeah. men. Yeah, and there's so many examples of that, right? And then when we criticized yeah. it, we got criticized and they said, oh no, you have to have separate divisions for women for that, which which seems very strange to me. So, so, so what, what, why are people doing that? You know what? I think it's just, this is very, this is where politics can just get in the way of things, in my view. And that's where politics really doesn't help at all. I think in, like, to some degree, yes, there was like a female quota that maybe has been helpful, especially in the corporate structures in order to kind of enforce that. And I'm Because you shift the culture a bit. Because you shift the culture, you usually force them. Like in Europe, they, in Germany, especially they, they adopted like a 40% quota for 
board members to be female and then they're doing the same thing on like senior leadership in companies and I think it's 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 possibly a great way to pull more female doesn't talent it, doesn't into it mean the, that people are skeptical of the female women on the board though of because, course yeah. yeah exactly I mean that's I think that's a downside I'm, I, to be honest I don't have like a like a like a like an I cannot have the opinion to the same degree that people have that have worked in corporate cultures I have never that's personally fair. been exposed to that environment but I can speak to the technology industry and the technology ecosystem and I have yes I've been confronted with biases from investors who didn't think a woman was able and capable of managing money but I never took it personal and I never took it as something that you know I wanted to cancel or I wanted to you know throw off I said you know these guys will maybe learn later it's fine you yeah. know like there are other people that trust me and that's the important thing yeah. in, in like investing founders but also in, in yourself and in diversity as, as a whole I think trust creates magic right if you trust people and if you show them trust it empowers and it unleashes like a full load of potential and then you know if you and if I trust people I trust founders I have investors that trust me eventually you know sometimes things go wrong sometimes you get disappointed and the small tax that you kind of end up paying for the trust that you give but I think the upside you get from trust in all directions and I mentioned that's the business you have to keep you have to keep giving out in the right way yeah you have to keep giving that and you have to make sure you give that it's just a cultural thing like give that towards my employees I give that towards my founders investors give it give it towards me and I think that's that's the way we really make sure we um we, we can overcome the bias and I think just one more thing on the on the diversity front one thing that actually saddens me is the fact is is this whole sort of woke cancel culture movement currently simply because i feel like it has a sense of leaching the trust out of society you know it, it just, makes it makes people have to be too careful with each other too careful trust. it makes people it, it just kind of assumes bad intent like that's what you're essentially doing and how can we operate as a society how can i take the bus how can i get on a train if I have to assume there are people that, you know, have just malicious and bad intent. Like, it's, like in a way, it just doesn't, it's not, it's not, it doesn't work. It make, That's what I feel. It makes and, men more, have to be more careful too than they should. Yes. And that, and and that would be, imagine how sad it would be if I wasn't able to get into a meeting room with a man and like with a person such as you to discuss and learn from you. I think that would be a shame. And I've always grown up with, you know, people that were very different. I was always curious about people that were just essentially I don't know, very different. And then they were, they may, may have ended up being homosexual or they may have ended up being like in any, in any kind of the, like, let's say, uh, how do you call that marginalized part of society front simply because they're usually very curious and interesting people that people and then, mm-hmm. you know, active in the art, et cetera. Oh, oh, oh. But what I'm, what I'm saying is that if I, in these interactions now have to apply filter after filter after filter in the way that I interact with them yeah. and I, I'm not able to, it's not helpful to, everyone, to you know, but... like, I have tons of people, tons of my friends pulled blonde jokes on me. If I was now going to start like saying, Oh my God, like, how can you condemn me for being a blonde? You know, I'm going to cancel you. That's ridiculous. Like, then these people are just not going to be as real and as as willing to interact with me anymore. And I think that's where real bias happens. Yeah. That's actually where this that's whole really thing just goes it's, wrong. It's more important we have more trust in society yeah. and less ability to, to take each other down. Yeah. And I think that's also where democracy, and I think that's maybe an important point to mention as well, where democracy happens. Like there's a German philosopher, speaking of it, Habermas, who actually your friend Alex Karp also studied. And he said that democracy is essentially something that happens in conversation, you know, like it doesn't happen in, you know, in the, let's say, pure political sphere, but it happens in you and I discussing and sharing arguments, right? And discussing different perspectives we share. And I think it's so, so important that we make sure that room doesn't shut down. Like we must be mm-hmm. able to, you and I discuss a lot. I think you have incredibly strong arguments. I may come to different conclusions at times and that is fine. Like I can have a different conclusion to you. And that is also rooted in the fact that yes, we all seek truth as humans, mm-hmm. but 
the way we come to truth or we find truth along the way is determined by the way we perceive reality. And that's back to you know, neuroscientific evidence. Like if we, you have a different sensory input spectrum to, to, my, to me, like you process it differently based on your experiences, etc. So you come to very different conclusions oftentimes than me. And that is great. I think that is what our society what's needs. That's called a pluralistic society, yeah. which, which sometimes people forget pluralism can be healthy in our society. It is healthy. I think it's yeah. totally needed. And we're getting more and more pluralistic. That's actually speaking of optimism, right? That is something yeah. that I'm excited about. Now we have to find a framework from a political perspective to make sure that doesn't divide us, but it actually makes us, you know, conceptualize that and, and, and make sure we, we, we can engage towards a future that is inhabitable for our children. So, so, speak, so speaking of optimism, I started American Optimist to push back against this wave of cynicism and pessimism yeah. in the United States. And from your perspective in Europe, what would you say to Americans who, who don't believe the future is brighter than the past? Do you, do you share the same concerns? And uh, is there this pessimism in Europe as well? Is this a big challenge right now? It's interesting you ask that. I personally always perceived the U.S. to be super optimistic, you know? It's maybe because I've always... You know, my, my grandfather on the paternal side was American. I went to boarding school in the U.S. And I always, coming to the U.S., I was, I was like, wow, it's like amazing how people just believe in a better future. Well, your you friends know? like me here are very optimistic. Yeah, yes. exactly. And so maybe <laughs> maybe I have like a bias. I, maybe I'm not seeing a lot of the pessimism that you are, that you you're, are in. Your friends with venture capitalists here who are Yeah, but I have not only things. been like, I'm friends with a lot of artists. I'm friends with That's a lot true. of, you know, I've, in school, I have friends from boarding school when I went to U.S. boarding school. So I have like, I would say like one of the strong suits I probably have is that I've always you, you, you partner with optimists you have them around you I have them around, but like, just going back to that point, I think I've always interacted with very different areas of society, right? Like, are, the, the, are the artists optimistic, really, that you know here? Is because that would be cool. Because I don't know too many. Most artists tend to be seen right now as more nihilist, more cynical. Um, it depends. You have bo- you have everything you have on both. the spectrum. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I, I think like you also are. I'm, I'm personally drawn to people that are optimistic. I think you're, the best in us are optimists with experience. Yes. The worst are cynicists when it comes to creation. Because if you're cynical. Like there's no, you know, you just end up being nihilistic, right? It's important to understand that I love reading it. I think it's interesting, but it's not going to be something that you should expose yourself with too much or you should personally assume you have to take a side. Like you cannot be cynic, I think. Do you see America and Europe solving some of these problems you were describing with democracy? Is is this something we can get through in a positive way? To be honest, right now, like my sense is that we have to invest a lot more work to make that happen, right? I think we have to make sure we come back to like a beneficial conversational ground again, because what we're currently seeing is just basically postures, right? It's, it's gotten mm-hmm. to this level of abstraction and that is abstracted away from reality. It's, it's not, it's not a healthy level. We got to find a way yeah, to make it healthier. Exactly. Well, so what, 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 what areas of innovation are you most excited about the next 10, 20 years? Like what emerging technologies can possibly influence our society and our lives? Oh my God, there's so many. I think it's, it's, it's very interesting, Joe. I think there's so many overlapping technologies. I think AI is probably one of them, right? And think we haven't even reached the full potential of, of where that, that application can go. So I think that's something where we spend a lot of time, especially in Europe, looking at, you know, AI applied to vertical sectors, such as manufacturing. So AI can make all these things cheaper. I have all these friends around social media who are, they believe they're technological determinists. So they yeah. think like there's like a metaverse and AI is going to yeah. make it really interesting, but they, but they're, it's, they're kind of dystopian uh, technological tournaments. Like they seem to think we're all going to live in a metaverse and it's all going to be totally different. And yeah. Calls, and there's always 
problems that can emerge yeah. based on that. Like, do, 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 is that right? Is there like the cynical future? Or what should the world look like in 2050 if we have like you know technologies? To be win, honest, I don't you know. know. I find that whole discussion yeah. fascinating, right? I think yeah. it's really fascinating. I think also that's the reason why sci-fi novels exist, right? And I think it's yeah. great that we have that's people art, in the valley. Again, the Isn't that cool? That, I think it's yeah. just cool that people have just kind of fleshed that out and make us see that as a potential, right? I think five years ago when we had our first conference and in, in that you that you joined the big discussion was oh my god a robot's going to steal our jobs you know like what's going to happen like we're going to all these autonomous cars like everybody's going to go bankrupt oh, yeah. we'll, gonna... be, we'll be fine with all exactly that. and yeah. now we basically say we hope the robots will come you know like five yeah, years need, down, need, need down the line we need more robots us. because we just don't have the manual labor to get the, working, the job done in the working class needs, exactly needs and i think there's stuff. never been like GDP growth without population growth. So, 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 so far, this stuff's all working to help. We, exactly. We should, so should, far, yeah. it's working to help. And then I think, like, on the, it's great to have that as inspiration. Probably part of that will manifest, right? But I still believe that what we're doing now, talking to one another, seeing you finally again after COVID, is great. You know, it's just something that I don't think is going gonna, is gonna to go away. Um, it's going to go away too soon. And we see that, I think, with remote work. And I think we have invested heavily and doubled down on the industry because it's an interesting sector to invest in. I think a lot of it's here to stay. But I think looking at hop in as one example of virtual conferencing that has just kind of not grown as fast since people are able to meet in person again because ultimately that's where human connection happens and where you know you you can unleash a whole lot more energy and creativity and like actual deeper thought and exchange than just through virtual interviews. That's a, that's a great note to close on human connection and in person is good so we'll, we'll have to have more big conferences at the, at the castle it's more exactly. fun than, than, than virtual <laughs> well i hope you come back soon thanks Jeanette, for joining thank you